Chapter 3, Part 6 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Bernie Smith. Chapter 3, Part 6 the study of the old testament and the religion of israel five the religion of the hebrews religion and history the modern approach to the study of hebrew religion has shown that the religion was just as truly a historical product as is the religion of any other people the history is one of growth and development from a primitive type of thought and conduct to a relatively advanced and lofty type. Progress in religion went hand in hand with progress in culture. Jephthah, in a primitive age, sacrificed his daughter to please his God. A writer in the post-exilic age says, Wherewith shall I come before Yahweh and bear myself before the Most High God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It has been told thee, O man, what is good. Yea, what does Yahweh require of thee, but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with thy God. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. David dreads expulsion from Israel as involving banishment from Yahweh in First Samuel 26, verses 19 and 20. A later David, living at the other end of the Hebrew career, says, Whither can I go from thy spirit? And whither can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make show my bed, lo, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, and dwell in the utmost part of the sea, there also would thy hand lead me and thy right hand hold me. Psalms 139, verses 7 through 10. The second commandment says that Yahweh is a jealous God, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and the fourth generation of them that hate him. Ezekiel, at the time of the exile, says, quote, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of his father, neither shall the father bear the guilt of his son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be for himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ezekiel 18.20 Such being the case, the study of Hebrew religion is in reality a part of the study of Hebrew history as a whole. It calls for the same preliminary processes in the treatment of the sources of information 
that any other historical investigation calls for the same sort of allowance must be made for the point of view and purpose of the writers for the limitations prejudices and enthusiasms it is also to be continually borne in mind that religion is one of the most conservative elements in civilization that it tends to conserve and enshrine the old even long after the new has taken a place alongside it many a primitive religious idea or institution has persisted into modern times sometimes with a change of function or significance that keeps it alive and effective sometimes having lost all significance and become a mere matter of habit sustained by the momentum of its long history this will explain many an apparent inconsistency in the religious consciousness of later times it also makes it possible to recover something of the more primitive religious mind from the religious practices of later generations religion and culture the effect of the political and economic history upon the content and development of the religious history must be carefully studied if religion is one of the functions of culture it must be studied in relation to all the other functions if it is to be properly appreciated take the effect of the settlement in canaan upon hebrew religion as a case in point the god idea of the nomadic israelites was wholly unfitted for the needs of a settled people the god of the desert had been thought of as supplying all the needs of his people there but a new kind of life confronted them in canaan here they must become farmers and city dwellers whole areas of new experience were opened out before them they must learn new ways of living and they must learn to associate their god with these new ways the canaanites were farmers and must be depended upon to teach their art to israel but the canaanites were worshippers of the balaam and organized all their agricultural life in connection with baalistic rites the balaam were for them the lords of the soil and the givers of the fruits yahweh must displace the balaam and these functions if he is to retain the loyalty of his people he must become a farmer's god this change of function on the part of israel and yahweh required much time it was a life-and-death struggle for the religion of israel which ended in complete victory over the balaam only after centuries of conflict c f hosea chapter two verses two through thirteen another illustration of the dependence of religion upon history is at hand in the hebrew teaching regarding the personal responsibility of the individual to god for his own deeds this teaching never received full recognition and distinct emphasis till the days of jeremiah and ezekiel prior to that period the whole thought of the teachers of religion had concerned itself with the problems and duties of the nation as such 
the future of the kingdom of yahweh was indissolubly bound up with the future of israel but at last it became clear to the religious guides of israel that the nation as such was doomed was yahweh therefore to be eliminated from history this led to a transfer of attention from the nation to the individuals of which it was composed and to a recognition that the kingdom of god must be set up in the hearts of the pious hence ezekiel takes upon himself the cure of souls and wrestles with the problems and doubts that disturb the faith of the men of his day through the experiences of those trying times he is brought to see that no man is condemned by yahweh for sins committed by other men and that no man's righteousness can be counted to the credit of another than himself isaiah and micah interpret the invasion of sennacherib as chastisement from yahweh for judah's sin and lack of faith a later isaiah kindles faith in the hearts of his despairing people by exalting yahweh in his omnipotence and soul godhead when his people are buried in exile apparently having no god and without hope in the world habakkuk preaches that the necessity of faith in god when all men's hearts are failing them for fear the prophets as a whole make yahweh the god of the world just when it seems inevitable that his own land will be overrun by the heathen the relation between religion and the larger life of the day was vital and must always be taken into account hebrew religion and semitic religion another aspect of the hebrew religion is the relationship of the hebrew to the oriental re religions in general we can no longer think of the religion of israel as existing in a vacuum the civilization of the hebrews owed much to the semitic world in which it was developed we can safely say that there was little that was distinctly hebraic in it it was largely composed of the semitic and non-semitic cultures that surrounded israel and were rooted in the very soil upon which she lived if this be true it is scarcely possible that the religion of israel could have escaped some influence from the religions that were vital elements in the neighboring civilizations the possibility becomes even more vague when we consider that not a single one of the great fundamental institutions of the hebrew religion was exclusively hebraic sacrifice prayer sabbath circumcision clean and unclean prophet priest temple feasts fasts all these institutions were existent among other semitic peoples and that too long before the hebrew nation and people came into being the latter did not create their religious institutions they inherited them this inheritance carried with it a tremendous body of semitic religion which became the substratum of hebrew religion in order to get a right historical view of the religion of the old testament it is incumbent upon the student to obtain some idea of the elements in it that were held in common with their semitic ancestors and brethren to trace their resemblances and to note their 
differences. When we discover, for example, that in many cases precisely that which was unclean for the Hebrew was taboo for other peoples, we are on the way to a new understanding of clean and unclean. When we note that circumcision was not an exclusively Hebraic rite, nor even confined to the Semites, but a practice in vogue among the most widely scattered peoples, from the North American Indian to the Aborigines of Australia, we approach the study of it in Israel with a wholly different mental attitude. When we learn that the root word for holy is the same throughout the Semitic group of languages, and that in Assyrian, for example, it is used in one form to designate a prostitute or harlot, we get a new point of view for the interpretation of the Hebrew word. Even prophecy, the crown and glory of Hebrew religion, was at home also in Syria, Assyria, and Egypt. It is gradually appearing that messianic prophecy had very close parallels in Assyria and Egypt, and it is by no means unlikely that the messianism of Israel received some of its coloring and content from one or the other of these sources. Facts like these force upon the student the obligation to study the religion of the Old Testament from the comparative standpoint. It was not a thing apart. It was a religion among religions. It was one of a great family of religions. It exhibits strong family resemblances, but it also is marked by distinctly individual characteristics. Both alike must be investigated. The differences will appear all the more wonderful when they are seen against the background of so many and such great resemblances. Problems in the Study of Hebrew Religion The modern student finds the study of the religion of the Hebrews bristling with problems which invite attention. For example, when did monotheism succeed in establishing itself firmly in Israel, and when was it first formulated? Was it arrived at through a process of speculative thought, as in Egypt in the days of Amenophis IV, or was it attained as the result of ethical necessity? That is to say, did the Hebrews formulate monotheism in response to the demand for an ethical interpretation of the world to which such a doctrine seemed indispensable? Was any impetus toward monotheism received from Babylonia, Assyria, or Egypt, or was it a purely native product? Again, how is the marvelous ethical superiority of Israel's religion to be accounted for? Was it a gift from above, unmediated by human instrumentalities? If not, what elements in the environment and history of Israel contributed to this development? Were these elements present or absent from the experiences of the related peoples? Are we content to say that the Hebrews had a special and innate affinity for ethics, even as, according to some historians, 
the Greeks had for aesthetics? Cannot practically every Hebrew ethical ideal and precept be paralleled in the ethical teachings of the neighboring peoples? If so, wherein precisely does the ethical superiority of Israel consist? Yet again, the tendency of critical scholarship has to be placed practically all the eschatological writings of the Old Testament in the exilic or post-exilic age. Is this procedure valid, or is it better with some recent scholars to make eschatology antedate the whole prophetic movement and to see in the prophetic promises and threats merely an ethicizing of older eschatological ideas belonging to a more or less general semitic world view that is did amos hosea isaiah and their successors simply take over already existing non-ethical conceptions regarding national disaster or deliverance and world catastrophe and read into them great ethical lessons making effective homiletical use of them for the religious education of Israel. The development of Hebrew law is likewise a subject that calls for fresh examination. The historical school of interpretation has arranged the codes in this order. 1. Covenant Code. 2. Deuteronomy. 3. Holiness Code. 4. Priestly Code. With this arrangement has gone the tacit assumption that the last two codes, at least, were composed almost entirely of new laws formulated in the days of the exile and the following centuries. But we are now asking whether it is not more probable that very much of the content of these later codes was in existence and in use at the various shrines quite early in Hebrew history. Some of the laws in these two codes are obviously late, but are they all necessarily equally late? Is it not probable that much of the law and custom of Israel escaped formal literary revision until a relatively late period, when the aggressive priestly scribes laid hands upon the whole religious life of Israel and set their seal indelibly thereon? Finally, the influences and elements that entered into the composition of Judaism need closer definition. How much was the later legislation influenced by Babylonian law and ritual, either in the way of direct imitation and emulation or by the way of reaction and protest? What did Persian views contribute toward jewish religious thought especially in the realm of demonology angelology and eschatology did greek philosophy either directly or indirectly positively or negatively shape the thought of the hebrew sages six the religious value of the old testament the canon the extraordinary value of the writings composing the old testament was very early recognized. A process of official recognition and standardization of the literature was begun when the priests in Josiah's day 
secured the royal approval and public endorsement of the deuteronomic code of law second kings chapters twenty two and twenty three another long step in the same direction was taken in the days of ezra and nehemiah when a new edition of the law received the stamp of public acceptance nehemiah chapter eight the end toward which it all aimed was the direction of a canon of scripture canonization itself was not a single act but a long drawn-out process the precise time of its beginning has not been determined but the prologue to the wisdom of jesus ben sirach ecclesiasticus furnishes clear evidence that the law and the prophets were regarded as canonical before 200 bc and that the formation of the third division of the canon namely the writings had already begun at that time like uncertainty obtains regarding the date of the conception of the process of canonization it seems safe to infer from the existing evidence that the entire canon of the old testament was completed before the christian era in any case the question of the canon was taken up for discussion and settled by the jewish synod of jamnia which convened about ninety a d and decided in favor of the retention in the canon of all books that had thus far been included end of chapter three part six recording by tony richardson part six the study of the old testament and the religion of israel